Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. As promised, I want to talk today about what to do with the nagging feelings, the perhaps guilt, shame, fear, stress, whatever it is that's going through us when we have been wronged by another. And if we accept that forgiveness for all, all the time, regardless of repentance or restitution or confrontation, if we accept that that kind of a thing is wrong, what do we do with the feelings that we that remain? Well, even to frame it that way in the first place is actually quite false. I should know. I grew up in church. I hear these things from time to time. A pastor is asked in the middle of a Q&A, oh, Pastor, I've tried so hard to forgive this person who wronged me. And I know it's wrong to hold on to unforgiveness because this, this venom is still inside of me. But no matter how much I try to forgive, I just can't get rid of all these negative feelings. To which the pastor typically says, oh, you know, that's, that's a common feeling. It's something we all go through. We just have to keep trying. We just have to keep working at it. Pray, work with God. And eventually it'll get out of us. Is that good advice? If it's true, on the other hand, that forgiveness without confrontation, without repentance on the part of the wrongdoer, is not something that we should do, then how do we deal with it? What is the answer? How do we deal with the fact that wrong has been done? Well, I'll just throw out from the outset one of the uh, more obvious situations where we believe that we have been wronged, but in fact we are incorrect. We have not, in fact, been wronged at all. In a case like that, it might be that we were offended by something that somebody else said, or uh, we believed that their motives were X, their intentions were Y, etc., etc., and in fact that's not correct at all. Or perhaps we are moralizing where we shouldn't. We've been taught to believe that something is evil, like like the example that we just used, that if somebody offends another, then they've done something horribly wrong, when it's merely a matter of feelings. Feelings in and of themselves are not in a moral category. You actually have to have damaged a person. As far as I understand the scriptures, when Jesus talks about um, not offending, he's talking about doing something that causes another person to sin. Not just causing some negative feeling. But anyways, if you're moralizing where you shouldn't moralize, if you totally under misunderstood the situation, etc., etc., that's one example, obviously, where it's not a situation of forgiveness, it's simply a situation of learning the truth, of getting out of ignorance, and you can simply let that go. And perhaps restore, at least to some extent, the relationship that you had with that person prior. Now, for the all the rest of the situations where evil has, in fact, been committed, a sin has been done against you, 
what do you need to do? If the other person has not sought repentance, sought restitution of the relationship, genuine, actual sorrow, being really actually sorry for what they did, if that has not happened, what do you do? I want you to imagine that you're in the middle of Africa in the wilderness. And you're just kind of strolling around. You're actually living out there. You set up a tent in the evening and have your sleep. And all around you there are, maybe not in your immediate vicinity, but, you know, in the general area within miles and pretty much every direction, you got lions, you got hyenas, you got alligators, and so on and so forth. You've got all kinds of predators that may be just hungry enough to try on a little bit of human in their gullets. And you just keep setting up the tent. There's really no security at all, just a flap. And eventually, one night, a predator of some kind, maybe a young lion, comes around and goes, hmm, what's this? And gives you a nip on the heel. Just just kind of curious, not really actually trying to eat you. Uh, but, you know, just gives you a nip on the heel, and you, you shock awake, and you shake him off, and lion goes running away because it, was, it wasn't really hunting. It was just curious. So then, what you do is you're like, all right, I can't stay in this tent anymore. I have to build something more substantial to sleep in at night. So you build an actual construction, some sort of a shed, something that will at least discourage animals from getting in. They might be able to knock on it, but they can't get it open. Now, you're nervous because you have finally been awakened to the fact that you've got a bunch of predators around you, but you can at least sleep at night. You keep the walls up, you keep the walls up. Now, let's say that you have somebody else who's in the wilderness with you, and they tell you, you know what? You're doing it all wrong. You set up the shed, you got all these walls around you to keep the predators out. That's not actually the way to keep the predators out, or to keep the predators from harming you. The way to keep the predators from harming you is you need to take this shed down. And what you need to do is you need to be at peace with the predators. You can get to know the lions, the alligators, the hyenas, everything. If you're just friendly with them, chipper with them, if you just have a good time with them, they're not going to harm you. They're not going to eat you. They're not even going to bite you. And for some reason, some odd reason. You you believe this person, first of all, and you try to go at taking down these walls, taking down this shed, and you just find you can't do it for some reason. It's really hard. You just, you get started, and then you just, no. You start taking out some of the nails, and you hear a lion roar, and you just, nope, 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 not going to do it. You, you start, try to start at it again, then you hear a hyena pack laughing in the distance. Just, nope, nope, not, not going to take it down. You go back to this person, and you're like, you know, I keep trying. I try, keep trying to take down the shed, and I just can't do it. I don't get it. I, I believe you. I believe that this is true. But when I hear all the predators out there, they just make me scared again. I don't want to take it down. He's like, oh, you know, a lot of people go through that. They learn this hard truth, and just have a hard time taking down those walls. But keep working at it. Pray. You can get it down eventually. 
Now, let's say that that person, that you in the wilderness, you eventually succeed and you take down the shed. And you're completely exposed again. What's going to happen once a pack of lions or hyenas or alligators? I know they aren't, they aren't packs, but anyways, they get hungry one night. What's going to happen to you? Now, many of you probably noticed exactly what I'm doing. This is a precise parallel, the analogy, to what I started out with. The person who comes to the pastor in a counseling session or Q&A and says, I just keep trying to forgive this person and I can't, I can't forgive them. I can't get it out. What's actually going on is that the unforgiveness, that is to say, the guard around you of wanting to not allow abusive people back in relationship with you, which would, by the way, again, have to happen if you fully forgave such a person, is an impulse that you resist. Why? Because this person has not repented their wrong. They have not gone from being a predator to being an ally. They have not gone from being a wolf back to being a sheep. And have not chosen to live at peace with you. For you to forgive them is for you to tear down the walls, to tear down the shed that you have are currently using to protect your to protect yourself from the predators. You've learned the reality that predators are out there. You got nipped on the heel. Thankfully, you were able to heal it, to mend it, to bandage it, and it's healing. But you're not safe from the predators yet, which is why you have the walls up. The unforgiveness, if that's what we choose to call it, is that protection. It's the refusal to keep predators in your vicinity. Now, who is it, what kind of people would advise you to take down those walls? That's a question for a little bit later. I'll come back to it. But let's return to the original question. How actually do you deal with bad people when they are unrepentant? When they choose essentially to remain predators? The reason why we struggle with this so much is not because there's this poison of unforgiveness in our souls. It's because we know we're in danger. When we have been truly wronged, we finally understand the reality that there are human beings out there who desire nothing else than to hurt you. Now, I also believe in the possibility of repentance, yes, of those people going from being predators to being sheep. That is possible, but there are those who do not choose it. Another piece of adv bad advice that many people believe, many very good-hearted people believe, is that we can redeem them. That if we forgive them, if we love them, if we give them things, if we whatever, 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 that they will just convert, that they will be so struck by our love, that they will become good people. Uh, it's possible with some, sure. But many of us have had the painful realization that the more we do those sorts of things, the more we simply are exploited. People will simply accept our generosity, accept our forgiveness, accept our favors, accept our kind words, and then go right on abusing us. 
we can't take down the walls fundamentally because we're not safe. And you can look at the pe- you can look at the people who refuse to have any guard around them whatsoever. What are their lives actually like? Do you want to live their lives? I've seen them. I know some of these people have known to be more precise. Their life is absolute chaos. I've seen some of them cling to things that are absolutely broken down and tattered as if it is the most precious possession. I've seen some of the most insecure people be those who are in a state of refusal to let down, or sorry, to let up their guard. They can't think straight. They can't make any firm decisions. They can't advance in their lives. They have no capacity, or at least very little, if any, of ambition. Their sweetness is surrounded by a constant state of chaos. The insecurity, the unprotectedness of such people is blatant on them. It's really obvious to see. They live lives of no walls, and those walls are letting in evil all the time. And that's why they have to cling to the simplest of things. That why they have to cling to things that are literally falling apart. Because they know they can't get anything better as long as they remain unguarded. Imagine such a person gets a new phone, a new phone case, a new computer. And they're surrounded by exploiters and predators at all times. What's going to happen to those new things? Obviously, they're going to get exploited. So they have to hold on to things that are worthless so that the predators don't want them. They have to be so weak and gangly and without meat on their bones that the lions don't even like the smell of them. That's another method of guarding yourself. So as I've been saying... The reality of this unforgiveness, if again that's what you choose to call it, is that we instinctively refuse to not guard ourselves. We try to take down the actual walls, and for some reason we just can't do it. Don't want to tear them down, don't want to take it out. So the real question is how can we be safe. Now this goes back into the Bible and the example of God. I spoke in the last episode about how God gives us the model. Does he also give us the model of how to deal with this unsafety? He absolutely does. What does he do? There are only two methods of how God deals with this as far as I have seen. One is restitution, forgiveness. In other words, the other person has repented, sought restitution, there has been a confrontation of some kind. They seek forgiveness from the Lord, they receive forgiveness from the Lord, and their bad deeds are not repeated. 
Now, going back to the example in the previous episode when I talked about how Christ advised Peter that he should forgive many times, that's not necessarily the same sin over and over and over again. He was simply pointing out that you can have one wrong done to you on a single day, that's repented. Another wrong by the same person done to you on the same day, that's repented. Another wrong done to you by the same person on the same day, and that's repented of. And every time you should be what? Merciful. You should love mercy. It's not necessarily the same sin. The point of repentance, as C.S. Lewis also points out, is a change of direction. We actually have to go back to where the path forked off and we took a wrong turn, go all the way back there, and go the right way. Now, of course, the convenience of this is that we don't have to live in the analogy where we actually would have to take the time to walk all the way back and take the next, the different path. We can do it in the here and now, but the point that Lewis is making is that we actually have to change our behavior. That's what repentance is. You admit that it's wrong, and if you admit truly admit that it's evil, that means you're not going to do it again. If you have a conscience, that's by the nature of admitting that it's evil. So restitution is one method of doing it. What's the other method that God shows us? Destroying it. Destroying what? Destroying evil. If people's entire people groups or individuals are doing evil and they do not repent of it, God eventually destroys it completely. Either way, it's destroyed, right? God either gets rid of the evil in somebody because they have repented and changed their ways, or if they have not, eventually they are completely destroyed. Now, I'm not saying that that is the model for us because we do not have the authority of God to destroy in that way. The point that I'm getting at here is God doesn't allow evil to remain near him. Look back in the scriptures, Psalms and Proverbs, it constantly goes on about this fact. God is not close to arrogance, to evil, to wickedness. He does not allow it to stay in his vicinity. Or, if you want to put it another way, God does not allow predators to stay close. He does not allow evildoers to nip at his heels or to eat his face off. He gets rid of it. So how do we become safe? In exactly the same way. We have to deal with evil. In the last episode, I ended by talking about the fact that the real reason why we want this forgiveness for all crap is because we don't want to do hard things. We don't want to confront evil. We don't want to have to do the hard work of actually changing or working to change the way people live in their actual lives from evil to good. But if we actually want to be safe, one way or the other, we have to get rid of the evil. And one of the first steps for doing that is we have to admit that there is evil in many cases where we are justifying it as good, or at least as neutral. If we're calling something neutral or even good, which is in fact evil, that's another way in which we are exposed. So if we, for example, call the abuse that our parents did to us as children 
okay and good, which again, we have to do as kids, otherwise we're going to be exposed even more so, perhaps even doomed. But if we do that as adults, then we are calling what our parents did, if they indeed abused us, good or neutral, okay, passable, and thus we are exposed to that evil. We have to have the walls up in some way, or we have to be not tasty to the predators. So we have to shrink. We have to become nothing. Or at least as close to nothing as we can get. Many people have a death complex. I don't even want to live, etc., etc. What does that signal? You don't want me. I already have no meat on my bones. I have nothing tasty about me. My veins are filled with venom, man. You don't want any of this. Stay away, stay away. There's all kinds of ways that we put walls around ourselves, and one of the deepest exposures is if we call what is evil neutral or good. That's the first step. Call evil by its proper name. Evil, sin, wickedness. Whoever has done it, however it's been done. Doesn't make the people evil, that's God's call, not ours. But if they have committed evil, you call it evil. They have done evil. If they have not repented of that evil, then that evil remains. That's something that Paul points out. Now the next step, okay, what do you do about that evil? If you have called it by its proper name, what's the next step? We're given it in Scripture. Again, back to Jesus' instruction about those who've done wrong in the church. You confront him or her with their evil. If they refuse to repent, you bring two witnesses. If they still refuse to repent, you get the whole church involved. That is probably to say the church authority. You confront, you confront, you confront. Why? Because you want them to not do evil. If you love them, you want them to turn to good. That's how you love people who have done wrong. You confront them. Now, if they repent, all good. That goes back to method number one, restitution. If they refuse to repent, Jesus, again, makes it very clear. You get them out of your life. Or in his example, the church, because they're part of the church. You do not allow evildoers to remain in your vicinity. You get them out. You ostracize. You turn your back. Get them away. Why? Because if they have not repented of doing evil, then that is a promissory note that they will persist in evil. You justify evil. If you're the evildoer and you call your evil okay, good, neutral, whatever, culturally permissible, then you have just said that you're going to continue doing it. Why? Because you just justified it. You said it's okay. You're telling yourself and the other person, it's okay for me to do this thing or to say this thing, or whatever it might be. Maybe even think this thing. If you're the evildoer, you just told everybody, I'm okay with this evil. So what do you have to do if you're the victim? Get him out. Get him away. Do not associate with that person, exactly as Jesus and Paul specifically instruct us to do. In Paul's case, he was instructing a specific church to do that very thing right now. Get them out. And when you have the evil removed from your life, 
and I'm going to keep using that word, it has to be, you have to understand, it's evil. You get it out of your life. Guess what just happened? If you have, in fact, succeeded, you're safe. Now you're in Africa, perhaps still, but you're in a city or you're whatever, in a peaceful place. Maybe you go from Africa to fairyland. I don't really care. The point is you are in a place where predators are not surrounding you on every side. So you do not need your walls. You do not need your shed. You do not, you do not need to shrink and collapse and become it not tasty to the predators. You can walk around again. And furthermore, you might even be able to go back and think about the fact that the predators were probably harmed themselves when they were very young. Maybe still are to this very day. Most of them are, by the way. And you can understand the evil a little bit better, not necessarily the justification of it, because it can't be justified. That's the point. But understand where they're coming from and at least have some grace for them. Not mercy, because that, again, has not been the process. They have not asked for mercy. But you can have some understanding, even some empathy for them, and not see them as mere demons or lions or hyenas, but as human beings. And that might bring you some additional peace and help you understand how to avoid evil in your own life. But whether that or that person themselves, if they do not choose to seek help, cannot be helped. That's their choice. Just as with the Pharisees, they never sought the help of Christ. Did Christ ever offer them his help? No. Again, the Bible says that God is opposed to the arrogant, to the proud. Well, if they continue to be proud for the rest of their lives, are they ever going to get close to God? Based on the scripture, nope. Should we do differently? Somebody who justifies themselves in their wickedness is doing a huge pride move. That is deeply arrogant. Should you remain close to that person? Nope. Follow the method, follow the example that God gives us. So you get them out of your lives, you're safe. You get them out of your lives, you might be able to turn back around eventually, once you've dealt with the pain, and so on because you're now in a peaceful place and can actually have the space and time to do that and to perhaps become sane again, you might be able to turn around and see the human in the human being rather than just the evil. It does take a process. But forgiveness? That's not the point. It's the point if they have sought forgiveness. And only then. So the goal is to be safe. You must surround yourself by people who are good, who are merciful, who are kind, who are not going to nip at your heels, who are not going to try to suck the blood out of you. That's how you solve this problem. So as I said earlier on, what kind of people then, if this is all true, if you accept my arguments, what kind of people then are the ones who tell us that we should forgive everybody? predators. If you can teach people 
that it is good and righteous to tear down the walls, to tear down your shack in the middle of Africa, in the middle of a bunch of predators, guess what you have just strategically done? You have taught somebody that to follow their conscience is to expose themselves to evil. What they must do, what they should do, what is right to do, is to expose themselves to the lions, the hyenas, the, hyenas, the alligators, and so on. The person who taught you to do that is in league with the predators. Is this beginning to remind you of anything in the scriptures? It should be. The wolves in sheep's clothing. They come into the pen with the rest of the sheep and tell the sheep, why do you have this fence around you? That's evil. That's wicked. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't have a fence. The very fence that the shepherd built. Why is the wolf in sheep's clothing telling you to tear down the gate? Because he wants the other wolves to have a bite. Including himself. He wants his allies to be able to come in. It's a win-win. If you expose yourself to the predators, you've also exposed yourself to that predator. The wolf in sheep's clothing. There's very strong scripture, including words from Christ, about such people. Christ makes it very clear that these people will exist, and so do the writers of the epistles. In fact, Christ even says something stronger. He points out that those people can be the church leaders. What does he call them? Bad shepherds. What if the shepherd is the one who is teaching us that it's good to tear down the fences around the sheep pen? What has he just done? Expose the sheep to the wolves. He has taught the sheep to believe that it is good to expose yourself to evil. Why would he want to do that? Because he cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus makes it very clear. Those are bad shepherds. They will be thrown out and replaced with the good shepherd. The shepherd who is actually going to keep the sheep in a peaceful condition. In a good place. In a place where they can roam freely and happily and safely. Both of these come into the church on a regular basis. And they teach us this bullcrap. To believe that things that are actually evil should be called okay, good, neutral. Things that are actually good should be called, I don't know, unforgiveness. Please understand the camouflage of wicked people. They want us to believe that things are good which are actually dangerous because they understand what's going to convince good people to do dumb things. All they have to do is teach us that it's right. They have to only find scriptures that seem to support their position and then preach that to the nth degree. They can convince us to expose ourselves to the predators if we believe that to do so is righteous. Of course. Of course they do. 
That's why the wolf in sheep's clothing is even a thing. That's why the bad shepherd is an analogy. If he's a shepherd, or if he appears to be a fellow sheep, they're going to try to appear to be the sort of person who belongs where they're at. That's the whole game. That's the way they can deceive us. So don't buy it, my friends. Don't expose yourselves to the lions when you're still in the middle of Africa. Get to fairyland first. Or sometimes in some fairy tales, fairyland's very dangerous. So wherever you please, in the middle of a peaceful town in the middle of America. I don't really mind. Heaven, how about that? If you want to get beyond evil that has been done to you, there are only two ways. It is either repented of and there is restitution, or you cast it out of your life. Those are the only two ways. You want to be safe? Follow God's example. That's all I had for you guys today. I hope it completed our topic of forgiveness very well. Till next time.